Without a ball, it's just a court. And without your spirit, it's only a game. So, together with the fans, we bring our best. For your next pregame, let's share a twist on a classic. The Hennessy Margarita. A squeeze of fresh lime juice and a bit of agave syrup. Topped off with ice and a salted rim. Mix it, shake it, pour it. And enjoy the spirit of the NBA. Hennessy. Without your spirit, it's only a game. 21 and older, please drink responsibly. And what we did was we just kind of unpacked. You know, we take these southern communities, do a 100-mile radius around these cities. You get to 50% of the black population. Now, what do they need, right? And it's enablement of capital, enablement of digital systems. And, and so we're working on that, right? And I would think every corporation on the planet or in the world, in the U.S. at least, would say this makes a ton of sense and it works because um, it does work, yeah. right? You, we, we show you digitize a CDFI, Community Financial Development Institution, MDI, guess what? They can lend out orders of magnitude more money and not increase the risk on the money in, you know, that they're lending out. Mm. And it changed the economic condition of that community. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. Point forward. This is Andre Iguodala. This is Evan Turner. We're trying to get to the true essence of not just basketball, but life. And that means something, something, something. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. That level of understanding has been taken out of the game. game. What's up, y'all? Welcome back. Third episode, Point Forward, the podcast. Y'all know me, Andre Godala, main man, Evan Turner. What's up? If you missed it, uh, we've had Steve Ballmer and Bones Highland on our first two episodes. So definitely check those out wherever you get your pods. And we've got another big one today. Billionaire businessman and philanthropist, African-American, most important part of the title, Mr. Robert Smith. But before we get into our conversation with Mr. Smith, let's dig into some of the latest topics hitting our world. Uh, As you know, E.T. and I are pretty close. We pretty much agree on everything. But not everything, if that makes sense. Uh, our down for that, clown for that segment where we uh, get to debate and uh, talk about some interesting things that have been going on in uh, the wild world of life. I like how you said that. Yeah, yeah, me too. So I'm down for that saying. Point forward. E.T., uh, I guess our first debate. Stephen A. Stephen A. Smiths from yeah. uh, the Disney Network, ESPN, which is under mm-hmm. the Disney umbrella. Uh, he makes eight million per year, and publicly, he's claiming that he's underpaid. And I guess I just started with saying, "Are you down for that or clown for that?" I I, I think it's a clown for that because at the end of the day, doesn't he make the most money at ESPN? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Then, so why? Because he's the best one at ESPN. So when it comes down to it, if he's making less than somebody at like a Fox Sports or like I don't know, like a the Zone or whatever, it's probably because they have a bigger budget. You know what I mean? Or you don't think so? Uh. Uh-uh, uh. I'm down for that, and I probably but think ESPN, yeah. You you don't think ESPN is kind of like arguing like, bro, this is ESPN. We straight. This is what we're paying you. This is the level you're making before. And now you're gonna make this. But we've had conversations in terms of the value you bring to your 
either your industry or the company you work with. Yes. So I say all that to say. Correct. I, I dig you. Michael Jordan was getting 30 million and 33 million this last two years with the Bulls. And like it was the first time like a guy took that much of a salary cap. And we still said Michael Jordan was probably underpaid, right? Yeah, he should have got it. It's what David Fox said, 100 million. He Correct. There's nothing like him. Correct. Yeah. And, and we talk about that with players today, too. We just had this conversation not too long ago, in a, a couple pods ago. I don't know which, uh, which one it was, but you were saying, like, it should be a salary cap exception. Like, we had LeBron, we had Steph, we had yeah, CP, yeah. we had a few guys, right? That's what I'm saying. When you look at the latest uh, NFL uh, analyst slash broadcaster um, payments, uh, what did Troy Aikman's up there? Kirk Herbst, yeah. Kirk Herbstreet went crazy. Romo went crazy. Like, them dudes is going crazy. And this is for one day a week for 18, 19 weeks, what have you, right? And Stephen A has... I don't know, four or five projects and they're about to give him another project. And you know how ESPN is with, yeah. they throw you in that gauntlet. Like yeah. you got to show on ESPN, you got to show on ESPN too. You got yeah, yeah, you got ESPN yeah. plus, and then yeah, you yeah. got uh, ESPN Deportes where they, they translating your words. And then you got yeah. ESPN radio. Like yeah, pretty you know, soon they just, yeah, they just let the, they don't even lead a set. They're like, here's the next show. And you like, damn, <laughs> You flipped the channel thought, and it was yeah. like, he on ESPN too now, but he had the same outfit on. I'm like, oh, he on the same set. And so when you, when I think about you know, I just was talking to Shannon Sharp and I'd say to him, I would never have thought to turn a channel for sports debates from ESPN to Fox until Shannon Sharp went to Fox. That is truly powerful. Like you're moving numbers and especially in the streaming world. And we've been having a lot of those conversations in terms of, you know, when uh, who's the biggest podcaster? Period, uh, right now. Uh, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. When Joe Rogan went over to Spotify uh, yeah. in that deal, and you know they're debating whether or not him bringing all of his users over to one platform is a plus or a minus is very powerful because he did bring a lot of folks over. Yeah. It was more scrutiny. They talked about which episodes belong on, which episodes <laughs> didn't belong on. But you're bringing a mass amount of people. And, and in the tech space, they say once you get to 10 million subscribers, like boom it's like you're you're a unicorn now and so like that's the magic number and uh i think i just read um kelly clarkson she has like a million and a half viewers per day on oh, her wow. daytime talk show right it's like 1.2 1.3 i right? love kelly clarkson she's like the new ricky lake <laughs> correct Right, yeah. right. Ricky Lake was popping back Ricky. in the day, right? Bro, Ricky Lake was under. I thought like she raised me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's just a real thing. Uh, but no, when I you love Ricky Lake. When you start thinking about those numbers and, you know, you can say whatever you want to about Stephen A. Like, Stephen A move how you're supposed to move. Like, I saw Stephen A walking down the sidelines or when he's in the building sitting courtside on these, like, he... He moves like a public figure, and it's so it's so funny to watch. I'm he like, walked in the game. He walked into the finals, and it's like, bro, buddy, act like he averaging thirty eight, eight and seven. He has security and everything. Uh, that's what I'm saying, and so I can't knock him for moving like that. I probably I would I would disagree with him moving like that. I'm like Stephen A. Like it ain't that serious, but for what he's doing for this network and going through trying to figure out streaming versus yeah. cutting the cord versus you know what I mean and. We keep talking about 
does Stephen A really, Stephen A doesn't have somebody that's, you know, helping him out when he's having an off day. Like, like look what he's done for uh, Michael Irvin. You know what I mean? Or look what he's did for the uh, the new dude. Uh, he got some weird name. The, uh, Mad dog. <laughs> the one that you get, yeah, the one that JJ treated. <laughs> right. Anybody could be on ESP. I mess with Mad. Shout out Mad Dog and all, but golly, bro. Like the I'm, names I, you just named is crazy. Keep going. That's what I'm, like. I, that's what I'm saying. That's how influential. That's how you know. That is the platform that Stephen A has built for himself. Like he's really doing it. And yeah, quite honestly, I think he's worth more than 8 million. He's probably worth more than double that. Look at, look at what no, Tom no, no. Brady got offered no, no, out no, the no. gate, yeah, like 30 million a year. Yeah, but he's definitely worth more than 8 million for sure. But the dudes you're bringing up and comparing it to, that's Tony Romo. I'm talking about doing this job. I'm not talking about throwing a football to a tight end or throwing a ball to open no, receiver no, no, no. or audible no, no, in the call. I totally didn't, but this job means something though. Like who yeah. you are, like Tony Roma, like Troy Aikman, like I agree. those dudes are experts. So they're literally opening up a book to talk football. You understand what I'm saying? Like yes. real life experts. So I think for that expertise that they have, along with mixing in, it's like when we watched the most F documentary, it's like if Ye was if Ye was good at, you know, making beats, he's only 50 percent of decent, at, you know, what I mean, rapping. Yeah. Then he's going to be legit. And I think that works Bars. with Romo and Aikman. You know what I'm saying? Like it comes down to that type of situation where we're paying for our expertise. Mm -hmm. you're, you're having dudes that played the position for years and years do it. Mm -hmm. Stephen A. Smith respectfully has a lot of knowledge and more than certain people, but his some of the stuff is just hearsay. He just sits and talks trash. He has a great gig, bro. When I go to your games, I'm walking in with the fence. Stephen A is going back. He never played not one game and he has security. The people in Boston can ride me. Like you, you understand what I'm saying? He has a great gig. He has his own his own platform. You remember three or four years ago, him and the platform wasn't big enough for him and Skip. Right. But you now they're talking about that. Then now that's the part I'm saying. It's like Stephen A is really holding it down by himself. That whole the game games ain't starting on Monday through Friday. The games aren't starting until 7 p.m. on the East Coast. So you got to fill all that time. And you know yeah. how growing up was like there's no longer we can watch SportsCenter six, seven times in a row. Yeah, like yeah, they're yeah. done with that. No, and like yeah, you said. Like he's just filling them slots. He's going from first take. He's going to his radio. He's going to yeah, something right. he's else. Going to something, and he's got twenty years in the game. That's all I'm saying. Like he's put his sweat equity in to be his name holds value as someone who's did it on the field, their playing field. Because of you know, like I respect him because he went back and he talked about his journey. Like he started off at you know he played a little bit of ball at an HBCU, and then he was like their local. Uh, at a journalist and then he did like the local radio for like a small school and so like yeah. he just kept sharpening yeah. his tools up and and he got it like buddy was he got it he got it off man and and he was kind of like a pioneer to it all so like I'm just I'm just here for it no, and, he, and he looked like me no and I feel where you're coming from I'm just saying bro I understand why they're paying Romo and Aitman there's it's more to it than just a dude grinding from 30 years. What Stephen A did, where he's coming from and everything is, is a big time deal. I'm just saying, I understand why they're paying for a Romo and an Aikman. You're, it's new, it's new media before new media. Like, hey, Romo is unbelievable. He he's amazing. You, yeah, he can tell you what's happening next. Yeah, I'm like, not telling you that like, they underpaid. Uh, like, yeah, they no, paid no, no, correctly. No, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm just saying, like, for sure, like, even if they were paid. I'm just saying, I ain't see Michael Vick get that big of a check out the gate. 
I mean, people love dogs. <laughs> serious. So let's keep going. Point forward. All right, all right. Uh, we can jump into the crypto. The question for this current topic is: cryptocurrency is the truth. Is that are you down for that, or is that a clown statement? I I just have yet to see it, you know, happen. Right now, every you keep getting these headlines that it's just such a roller coaster. You understand what I'm saying? And yeah. right now, the only place that it's proven is in you know, you know, impoverished countries with people that have internet. You know what I'm saying? I I just I understand. I'm down with the with the whole theme of crypto and everything. I, I just don't know how it's going to implement itself into society without, you know, people causing a stir, you feel me? Like, and, and make it legit, you feel me? So, so you, you saying that the, the statement cryptocurrency is the truth, you're saying it's a clown statement? Right now, it's, it's a clown statement. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm down for it because, uh, you know, I understand, not that you don't, but- bro, I just well, don't want to miss the boat. Correct. Well, that's usually yeah. what happens to us, right? Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. we've seen this common trend of run the price up, sell it to us. Us being, you know, our community is the last to hear about it and we keep buying things at its peak. You know, like private equity is, is having a field day buying public companies, taking them private, firing 10, 15, 20% of the staff. And then, you know, you can just live off the, 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 the balance sheet. And so it's all about the timing and we've always been timing. So in the cryptocurrency space, you know, decentralization, meaning, you know, companies that are the unbanked, there's more unbanked than there are those banked, you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, you, you, got a, you got a company like Robinhood or a company like, um, you know, Coinbase. Or, you know, those are like early stage yeah. uh, web three companies. Yeah. And basically the blockchain is the big uh, technology slash disruptor. And they started with finance and dealing with money because if that's the hardest thing to disrupt finances, you know, our financial, the way we conduct business has been, we've been stuck in this, you know, capitalistic mindset where you got to go to the bank and you got to get a loan from them. And then the interest rates are there and, you know, um, supply and demand, um, and, and how everything works. And it makes it really hard for the, it makes it really hard for poor people to get to the middle class. It makes it really hard for the middle class to get to, you know, higher and higher. And that's how the system kind of works itself. And blockchain will enable us all to, you know, transact without supposedly systematic oppression. Uh, there's a receipt for everything. And yeah. when you do it in finance, then you can go further into voting, right? So now the police can't pull me over when I'm going to vote because I can just vote on the blockchain and it's stamped and then there's it's a ledger there and it shows like that was me and not a dead person voting. Like you got receipts, like them yeah, real receipts. Yeah. Tax taxes actually too. You know, everyone's like now everything's pretty much legal to, you know, um sell. You know, we were just talking earlier about, you know, marijuana. You know, that's something we may talk about in the future. You know, like we talked about uh What's his name? Whatever his name is now. Sean Combs. Mama call him Sean. I'm gonna call him Sean. And, <laughs> and what he did, you know what I mean? And so it, it used to be you get 10 years for selling weed, and now you can you can, you know, I saw one of our, you know, writers talking about now you can go buy some weed next to a spot selling cupcakes. You know what I mean? 
but somebody just got out of jail for selling weed. They was in jail for 10 yeah. years. Yeah, and so, wild. you know, so the, the blockchain is just supposed to uh, rid us of all those uh, barriers of entry into places that our people have never had access to. Now, the issue with cryptocurrency right now, I think one of the issues is we haven't found a true utility to these tokens. Everyone has a token. Right. And we just, we've been hearing about what's been going on with FTX. Essentially, FTX, um, my man, we just had Sam Bankman Freed on, right? Yeah. Uh, he was towards the end of season one and he broke the whole thing down. You should go back and listen. Um, but he was supposed to be the savior of the crypto space and his, his net worth went from 16 billion on like Tuesday afternoon to like 990 million Tuesday night to like negative 100 million <laughs> on Wednesday morning. That's you know what wild, I mean? Bro. Yeah. And it was all, and it was all like, you should, I, we should all go do our homework on it because it's not as simple as somebody just, you know, giving you the information. And Binance really just went like hostile takeover mode and just left them for dead. But I'm gonna read exactly what uh, the CEO of Binance said. And they're both uh, crypto trading platforms, platforms you can go on and you can uh, buy and sell cryptocurrencies. And uh, they call them CZ, uh, CZ for short, just like SBF. And CZ said two big lessons, never use a token you created as collateral. And that was a big problem with FTX. And Two, don't borrow if you run a crypto business. Don't use capital efficiently. Have a large reserve. Binance has never used BNB for collateral, which BNB is their token. And we, oh, yeah. and we have never taken on debt. So basically he's saying FTX uh, used their own token as collateral and um, they didn't have a large reserve and they, didn't, and they borrowed a lot. Um, through Alameda Research, which is uh, another company owned by SBF uh, and FTX. And they kind of were basically their token. Um, Binance was able to sell off the token knowing that it wasn't didn't have much value in the ripple effects. Once you get a large amount of something being sold, the masses will follow you. That's kind of how stocks work. Like there's only but a few people that own a large portion of stock. So imagine if somebody selling off 20% of Tesla, everybody's going to see like, you see these volume of sellers for Tesla, that means something's going on. So everybody else is going to jump on on the sale too. You know how it works. We just talked yeah, about that yeah, with yeah. African American community. We the last ones to hear about something. So we see everybody selling. We got to sell. We see everybody buying. We got to buy. Yeah. And, and normally the um, the retail investors are the last one to hear about it and react. So essentially uh, they had two billion of their, two or three billion of their own coin. And when they start getting sold off, it, it has no more value. So now they yeah. got three billion that's worth zero and they had collateral against their own coin for a couple billion too. Basically like eight, they like eight billion in the red. Yeah, so, <laughs> and so, and then Binance, they start beefing on Twitter, talking crazy to each other. Uh, and, Binance, and, that sound like a kind of somebody <laughs> from Compton. I'm from Binance. <laughs> you Binance silly. Binance from Bompton, something like that. So Binance was just basically like, all right, y'all got a problem and we all realize y'all got a problem. So what we're going to do is we're going to help y'all out. It's, it's, and it's uh, funny because SBF was bailing everybody out. Like SBF was trying to help out whoever had the Luna coin when Luna 
uh, went to zero. Yeah, I um, that. yeah, there was a rug pull on that one, and then uh, there was talks that FTX would have bought out um, Robinhood if Robinhood ever get into trouble, and then now you see Robinhood's uh, stock just got killed and because it, of the news with FTX. And that's what I'm saying. And when you break down like spots like Robinhood, like how effective is Robinhood? Like Robinhood gives us us opportunity to inv invest in everything, but yeah. when you break it down, you just really moving around pennies. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But we are in a we are in a uh, very high interest rate. The Fed is moving up their rates. Uh, we're in a recession like economy going into a recession. So everybody's going to cut their spending. Everybody's going to cut their discretionary spending. Like you won't. Like I just heard on Bloomberg Radio this morning. If you look at McDonald's and their reports, McDonald's was stating McDonald's is stating that people aren't buying value meals. They're, they're not buying the whole meal anymore. They're going to the value menu. So they'll buy like the dollar double cheeseburger with the dollar fry with the dollar drink. There's no more buying like, you know, a number three. Like they just they just cutting stuff up. And, and when you start seeing that, people are starting to cut back on their spending. So what are the first things that goes like discretionary things like people might not go to the movies as much or, yeah. you know, things that you don't need as much. Yeah, it's yeah, like I got to sure. have a place to stay, you know, like Aldi's is killing it. Like I didn't even know Aldi's is not even American a company. And I thought it was so embarrassing growing up as a kid to shop at Aldi. Aldi's. Right. Like nothing had like mm. there was no name brand. You know, you were buying in bulk yeah. and it was the longest lines of all time because it was two cash registers and it was, you know, the whole hood and, in there. And the two dollar pizzas, the <laughs> yes. dollar orange, the, the dollar gallon orange drink. Shoot, I might go today. They you had orange I mean? drinks because we had we had this is this is my trauma talking. We had the orange juice from concentrate. So we brought the orange juice frozen in the can. And I remember that I used to do that. I don't know you, why my mama made me do that. You had to dump the joint in, then add three cans of the same water, and then you had to like boom, yeah, boom, boom, it up. Yeah, and bro. stir it up. And then my family, my mom said, "You can't drink orange juice after ten a.m." <laughs> Fam, it felt like man, that felt like man. This. I felt so like, you know, at times you was like, bro, we poor, bro. Like life ain't cool. When Mama Duke said we can't drink orange juice after like nine or 10 a.m. I'm like, fam, what is to y'all? Like this orange juice ain't even real. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. And it's like, damn, bro. Like, so that 20 cent finna kill us. It's going to make us even poor, huh? Like, to, get, to get the liquid form. But like, that's what I used to think. Like. I guess save, but you about to be down and dumps regardless. Correct. You know what I mean? Correct. So going back to uh, FTX and Binance, uh, Binance. Binance was like, we'll bail y'all out. We'll, we'll get y'all out of this issue because y'all got some balance sheet problems. Like y'all really in the red. Y'all really not valued us that much. So we're going to help y'all out. And so SBF put on Twitter like, cool, we're going to work together. <laughs> and the next day... <laughs> Binance pulled that chair from up under him. Like, nah, he's like, to send over your, uh, you know, we gotta, we gotta do our due diligence. We gotta look at your, you know, uh, yeah, profit loss sheets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's going on? And then when they looked, they was like, yep, they knew it what it was. And psych, like, we gonna let y'all burn. And they really just let him fail, bro. It's kind of crazy. crazy. That's like, wild, bro. And he billions. Did, remember, he gave 40 million to both the Democrats and Republicans too at the midterm. Like, that's. Yeah. They, they bogus for doing that, bro. Yeah. That's wild, bro. But I mean, that's business, right? That's that's um, <laughs> that, that's and that's, the and, and that's the stuff. 
because it's look that's like tacky. You know what I'm saying? It's like, bro, you just you just made me the brokest dude of all time. Well, I mean, like, I mean, I was joking about it because I was, I was asking you, you. I was asking you earlier. Remember when uh, we were talking about it was 42 Dugs and uh, ETSG Element of P? That's what I call them. Uh, <laughs> they were they were googling R. Kelly's worth. And I forgot what did the forty-two Doug say his net worth was? Or it was like negative two million. And it was dying. It was like, man, that's a broke, that's the brokest nigga of all time. <laughs> it was like how they were laughing and everything. Like, right. I remember seeing that, bro. I was dying. I'm like, damn. Like I mean, I feel bad for him, but like how they said it was hilarious. I'm like, bro, who who counts once you lose negative two million? Right. Once I'm a grown man, I get to $10, you ain't getting it. You know what I mean? Like you, that, All that negative, you just wasting yeah. your time and the calculator's time. But it is, in my opinion, that uh, SBF is he's too smart to be yeah. down for long. So I think, yeah. I think yeah, he'll bounce sure. back. Uh, but I, what, I think what we need to do is just keep a close eye on this, and we'll keep tracking it. And yeah. So hopefully our listeners were, uh, if, y'all, if y'all see anything, we should be keeping an eye on, let us know. All right, ET. On a, a more lighthearted note, um, we had some interesting uh, news. Um, somebody from the Point Four team, uh, our guy Ben. Uh, he, yeah, Mr. Osborne, who's uh, I've been following him for a while. Uh, I've, been, I've been reading Slam magazine since like early high school, middle school, and and so he's done a lot for that uh, for that publication. Um, and they had a ton of magazines come from there. Um, but anyway, he hoops with this cat in Manhattan and it's an old school dude who I'm guessing he's fifties, forties, fifties hooping in Manhattan. You always talk about those guys actually. Um, but the funny thing is the guy was, wears a wide 14, like his shoe size is a 14, um, but the, a wide width and he has hard for him to find basketball shoes. Most shoes are narrow, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so his favorite shoe to hoop in are game worn Evan Turner Lee Nings. I didn't like, so I guess you had a shoe molded to your foot by Lee Ning? Yeah. yeah, probably. Um, I don't know which one he's talking about, but he probably feels great because uh, those 14s are like 14 and a half. So you have like a little bit more wiggle room. So you got to think when we play, we play with ankle tape. Two pair of socks. True. And then you got to add room for the sweat. So I guess, did you know or did you have any ideas that there's a market for your shoes for not guys to collect, but to actually hoop in? So the dude goes to eBay and goes under collectibles and he's just looking for your shoes. And some of your shoes are signed, but he not buying the shoes to collect them. He he buying your shoes to hoop in them. So yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, shoot, they thorough. Like, they last long. Like, I'm, I'm with it. I mean, I think it's funny. I didn't know there was no market. You know, I've been in China numerous times because uh, the contract we had with Lee Ning. So, like, when I would go, o- go over there, I would see people over there, like, collecting them, I guess, and, like, buying buying them. But, like, nah, I wouldn't. To hoop in them. To hoop in them, bro. Like, I haven't. Um, that dude should go play a lottery or something. I don't know. Like, I can't believe he's doing it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess he, I guess it's supply and demand. Like, he, it's a need for these. At least you know they real. Because <laughs> ain't nobody bootlegging what he doing. So, so I, nah, I guess that's a funny story. That's cool. That's uh that's a good story. Enjoy them. The socks are even better. If you can find a pair of Lee Neen socks, you'll thank me later. 
Yo, you know, I used to get busy. He was one of the first dudes I saw go crazy in, uh, you know, a new, new to entry shoe, like a knee link or an Anta or 361. Oh, Louis Scola. Yeah, Louis Scola used to go crazy. Bro, yeah. he used to go crazy. And yeah, it, cause it's almost like, it's my question. Sorry to cut you up. Like, if it was weird to get hit with a cross or a crazy move by somebody that didn't have a pair of Nikes, Adidas on. Like, it was at one point, it was yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, like, true, 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 true. Like, Buddy yeah. is killing us in these weak shoes because at that point, we, we, we just yeah, didn't respect him. It. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But even, but Marbury was getting busy in them $14 shoes, though. Yeah, but Marbury, you already knew what it was to Marbury, though. You understand what I'm saying? Like, Marbury's already a problem. Like, he already True. was, like, established. And then Marbury was a trendsetter, too. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? He he walked in with Anne one. He walked in on his own way. Clearly, I mean, his trendsetting, you know, he was, he was a different thinker. But I that's mean, what, yeah. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I got to go see, I'm going to do some research or have our team do research on what happened to Starberry. Like, are they still selling it? Are they still moving units? Because he went yeah. over to China, went crazy. He had a crazy run. It was kind of like Sean John. You just say your licensing rights out to a company yeah. overseas and then they, yeah. you know, you just you just take a check for, for the yeah. name and rights of everything and then yeah. they just, they got to monetize it how they feel. Point forward. Hennessy and Mitchell and Ness have come together for the ultimate drop, a limited edition collection to celebrate Hennessy's continued partnership with the NBA because some things just go together. Like Evan and myself. Hey, man, man. Remember when we met back in the day at Tim Grover's attack facility? Mm -hmm. I think it was like 08. I was finishing up my freshman year, and you were about to prepare to get that bag, right? Yes, my extension year. We met in 08. In 2010, we fast-forward to be each other's teammates. Mm -hmm. I obviously thought I was better than you. Then the first day of practice, I go baseline. And you, you Brian blocked my shot before Brian. That was Brian. a good block, G. <laughs> bro, I remember that, that. Bro, that was an amazing block. I'm looking like, bro, what just happened back there? And then I'm like thinking to, like talking to my agent, like, bro, you just said I was better than this <laughs> Look, on the court, you're surrounded by a collection of personalities, egos, and talent. But when the pieces come together, that's when you form a great team. The same thing is true when you mix a great drink. Different ingredients come together for the first time, complementing one another to make something out of this world. And beyond the drinks, this drop with Hennessy and Mitchell and Ness celebrates the intersection of basketball with art, music, and fashion. Elements of culture that represent ways the fans and players pay homage to the game. The exclusive collection will have a limited drop available for both in retail and online. Check out at Hennessy US on Instagram for more information. Hennessy, without your spirit, there's only a game. 21 and older, please drink responsibly. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight, and the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? Hey there, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast. And yes, we are in the thick of the college hoop season. Our pod runs at least three times a week and covers everything you need to know. From the power conference team to the mid-majors, the scoops, the stories, game predictions, previews, huge recaps, everything. We cover it all. To find us, search Ion College Basketball Podcast wherever you get your pods. 
And now for our in-depth conversation, a guest that I've been a fan of, E.T.'s been a fan of for a very long time. He's done a lot of great things for the African-American community. Uh, we were just so privileged to be able to sit down uh, with him um, near his town, uh, Lincoln Hills, Colorado, um, and the significance of Lincoln Hills. We would talk about uh, all his philanthropic endeavors, things he did for Morehouse, clearing out debt for a whole uh, graduating class. Um, it's just such a humbling experience. Um, so with that, we introduce you, Mr. Robert Smith. And what we did was we just kind of unpacked. You know, we take these Southern communities, do a hundred mile radius around these cities. You get to 50% of the black population. Now, what do they need, right? And it's enablement of capital, enablement of digital systems. And, and so we're working on that, right? And I would think every corporation on the planet or in the world, in the U.S. at least, would say this makes a ton of sense and it works because um, it does work, yeah. right? You, we, we show you digitize a CDFI, Community Financial Development Institution, MDI, guess what? They can lend out orders of magnitude more money and not increase the risk on the money in, you know, that they're lending out. Mm. And it, yeah, so hey, listen, welcome again uh, to Lincoln Hill. So glad you all could, could come and visit this, this storied and historical place. Um, and we're celebrating our centennial this year. You know, it's, uh, Lincoln Hills was founded in 1922. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a lot of significance around the entrepreneurial spirit that still, you know, that resides in this place, which created its founding. Uh, it was founded as a place where African-Americans could come and I'll say find peace and serenity. You know, this was a time where, not that we don't have that today in many communities where African-Americans were uh, under attack. You know, I think this is three years after the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, which again, as you all know, part of my family came through Tulsa, ended up in Pueblo and then ended up in, in Denver, Colorado. And the founders of Lincoln Hills um, came here to create a resort community. Think about this, a place where African-Americans could come in the summers and uh, relax and enjoy each other's company. And uh, what they did was they created a, a, a development corporation. They plotted out 1,700 acres or 1,700 uh, lots where you could actually now buy a lot and build uh, a cabin and bring your families. And of course, there were only 4,000 African-Americans in Colorado at the time. So of course, they had to go outside. So that's why we had people from you know, Kansas and Oklahoma, African-Americans, you know, Missouri, which you guys have seen the list of the original, some of the original uh, owners here. Uh, and then uh, they invited and had a number of very storied guests, everyone from Duke Ellington, you know, Louis Armstrong, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, uh, Sarah Vaughn. They all came here. They all came. They vacationed. They held salons. They actually created a, a, a place of engagement and peace and serenity. Uh, and my family had the good fortune of being a part of it. Um, my grandmother was best friends with the, with the founder's wife. Um, and, uh, she brought my father and his seven siblings here every summer growing up. Uh, she was a school teacher and, uh, in that time, you know, school teachers didn't get paid in the summer. So I'm sure she brought them up here to ensure that they had you know, kind of a meal every day, or at least a couple of meals every day. And, uh, when I spent time with, you know, then my aunts, my father and talking about it, you could, you could hear in their voices, the importance of a place where they felt safe and a place where they could commune with nature and a place uh, where they could actually be together as a community, uh, not living in, in fear. And Lincoln Hills provided that. Uh, I had the good fortune of being able to 
uh, a decade or so ago, uh, buy and then expand the, you know, what was the traditional Lincoln Hills and recreate a lot of that. You all have seen what Lincoln Hills looked like before. It was yes. a mining tailing. Yes. Yeah, crazy. We say, oh, yeah, resort community. And then you yeah. look at it like, wait, that's a mining tailing, right? Yeah. But it was the outdoors and the great outdoors that they were, uh, uh, after, you know, they created the Phyllis Wheatley branch of the YWCA because the YWCA didn't allow African-American girls in. So, you know, the Phyllis Wheatley branch uh, had a thing called Camp Nazoni, which means beautiful in Navajo. And so you'll see lots of pictures of the Camp Nazoni yep. uh, women, young girls who were here in the summers. Uh, and so we've created a lot of that. You know, I've got Camp Nozoni uh, camp where we have a program for African-American girls for horseback riding in the summer. We get over 10,000 inner city kids as part of our programming through Lincoln Hills Cares. Um, they do everything from fly fishing to rock climbing to uh, outdoor nature experiences, learning about, you know, flora and fauna, uh, falconry even we do here in the summers. Then we have programs for uh, aged out foster kids here in the wintertime. Um, cause our foster care program doesn't do an adequate job of, uh, helping these kids as they're in college, what happens when they close the dorms down and they have nowhere to go cause they're no longer in the group homes. Right. And so we house about 30 or so of them every winter, uh, and, uh, have celebrations of the holiday season and we cook gumbo together and that sort of thing. So just feel very proud, uh, that I have a chance to be the steward of this place, um, to continue to create a place of peace and serenity. Uh, for the communities that I that I care about. Beautiful. So obviously you spent a lot of time here in Lincoln Hills. You told us a lot about the history, but you're from an hour away in Denver. Can you go back and tell us about your upbringing and uh, where it all started and how you embarked on this journey to get to sure. where you are now? Sure. Um, you know, again, my, my father's part of the family uh, ended up settling here um, in, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the pathway through Texas and Oklahoma into Pueblo and then into, into Denver. And my, you know, my grandma, like I said, was a, was a teacher. My, uh, my father was very studious. He ended up getting his doctorate degree in education, went to, uh, same high school. I went to Denver East high school. Um, then went to Denver university, um, got all of his degrees there. Uh, and my mother grew up in Washington, DC, went to what's called the storied, uh, Dunbar high school. Dunbar. You got it. Uh, she was, you know, valedictorian, brilliant, still the most brilliant woman I'm or person I've ever met. Uh, and she's 87. Uh, hi mom, just saying hi to you. Uh, and, uh, she moved out here to get her master's degree, ultimately got her doctorate degree in education as well. So, you know, my family is very focused on education. My grandmother, like I said, was really focused on building, uh, you know, a community, uh, of, of educated, uh, kids. Um, you know, she was, she, she, she developed curriculums for special education. She also owned a small um, kind of soda fountain. Oh. And uh, so my dad has uh, six beautiful sisters uh, that I am, and, and then his younger brother um, created, a, I call it a nice environment for a lot of kids to kind of, you know, participate in, in, in the soda fountain and what they did. They sold tamales and all sorts of stuff. I remember my dad telling me stories about going up to Red Rocks and selling tamales for a dollar when they had activities there. And I'm like, how'd you get up there? It's a long way to go. They take the bus. But um, a big part of that was being a part of the community. And I know growing up, my father, uh, you know, he was a chairman of the local YMCA. And this is where we all learned how to play basketball, not as good as you guys, obviously, uh, and to swim and to learn how to, you know, do crafts and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, hiking and camping were all part of that, that experience. Um, but my life changed, frankly, when I went to 
I went to Denver East High School. And my one of my teachers, I, I got a chance to, to participate in uh, coding. It was, uh, you know, the introduction of computers. Right. And I asked the teacher, I said, well, well how does this thing actually work? It was run by this thing called a transistor. And I was like, well, you know, who invented that? And he said, oh, this place called Bell Laboratories. And I said, well, you know, where, where are these folks? And they actually had a Bell Labs here in Denver. So I called them and I said, hey, you know, I'm interested in... Uh, I'm a junior in high school. And I said, I'm interested in getting a job uh, for the summer. And they said, well, you got to be, you know, between your junior and senior year in college. And uh, we have internships. I said, oh, great. I'm a junior in high school. I'm getting, I'm taking eight, you know, AP classes, getting all A's and those. So it's just like being in college. Uh, and human resources director said, no, it isn't. Call us when you're junior in college. So I literally called this human, re- we talked about this human resources director every day. And back then we had these things called pay phones. And I, Finish my, my class and I go in and I put a dime in a payphone and I call her and I, you know, she stopped, you know, every day for two weeks, she stopped taking a call after the second day and I left, left a message and I called her every Monday for five months. And she called me back finally in June and she said, hey, a student from MIT didn't show up. We're not offering you a job, but you can come and interview. So I had one suit and a 69 Plymouth satellite with like 140,000 miles on it. 140. Yeah, right. And uh, put $2 worth of gas in it. Two dollars. That's it. That was all you needed back then, man. Cars ran like horses. Yeah, seventy cents a gallon. (laughs) uh, And drove out there and got the job. Wow. And it opened my eyes to the world of technology and how technology was going to change what we did. I saw the first what was in cell phone. Oh, think about this. Oh, this is nineteen eighty, and I'm saying the first wireless communication systems in the labs. I'm like, oh my goodness. How does that change everything? Okay. And it did change everything. We're experiencing things today that were developed at Bell Labs 40 years ago. Think about that. So that changed my life. And uh, so I've always had intellectual curiosity. I've always had, you know, kind of a tenacious spirit. Uh, and I've always had a desire to improve the condition of my family and my, and my community. So you um, go to Cornell, um, major in uh, chemical engineering, correct? Right. You know, kind of give me your... Um, you know, not your experience in college, but more so your mindset on what did you wanted to do Sure, with that degree and were you sure exactly where you wanted to head it? Because it seems as if you you came from the educator's background growing up, um, you have a great sense of self, a great sense of your history. And, you know, like you said, intellectual curiosity. Uh, did you know exactly what did you want, what you wanted to do? And just kind of walk me through, all right, I'm in college. This is what I'm here for. But this is ultimately where I want to go. That's a great question um, because, you know, I've got some of my kids in college, finished college, going to college, all that sort of stuff. And, and they always ask, did, Dad, did you know? I'm like, no. So what I, let me tell you what I did know. When I got that job at Bell Labs and I met all these engineers, because I'd never met an engineer before, ever, right? Mm-hmm. ever. There weren't any engineers in my neighborhood. Um. I realized that I wanted to be an engineer. Didn't know what type. My mentor, the guy who I worked with at Bell Labs, okay, had a PhD in what was called solid state physics, and his undergraduate was in chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. His most brilliant cat I had met. He had 35 patents to his name. I was like, well, you must learn something in chemical engineering, right? right. So when I get to college and I understand that the smartest people at Cornell either went into chemical engineering or applied in, in engineering physics, one of the two. Okay. And I'd looked at both 
And I saw a little more normalization of personality in the chemical engineering group than the implied and engineering physics group. And all the A&EP folks know what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. <laughs> okay, that's a, a polite way of saying yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Right. And uh, I learned a very interesting thing that chemical engineers were at the time, and I will argue still are to a great degree, the modern day alchemists. Okay. Because one thing we know how to do is transform matter. We know how to take one form of matter and make something else. Yes. Do you guys know how to take oil and make plastic? I do. <laughs> Okay. Sand and make silicon. I do. Okay. Very few people on the planet know how to do that. The new modern day alchemists are software programmers. Right. Think about it. They take an idea and they can code that idea into a substantial existence of being something completely different and have its own ability to transform a business, an economy, an experience from out of thin air. Think about that. Pretty interesting, yeah. right? So did I know I want to be an engineer? Yes. I ultimately decided on chemical engineering, A, because it was, like I said, the hardest curriculum. And I knew that's something I wanted to challenge myself and do. Uh, but I also wanted to learn the elements of that alchemy. How do you transform matter from one form to another? And to continue to go from there, you know, I want to dive deep into how you built Vista. Yeah. And we'll start with... You know, you graduate from college. Um, well, we're going to get to your philanthropic endeavors and yeah. the giving pledge, which is that's that's the part I get really excited about because the giving pledge, for those that don't know, is you pledge to give the majority of your wealth away and to give it back mm -hmm. uh, in a philanthropic uh, means. Um, but to do that, you know, we've had many conversations. How do you build up your community? Right. You got to have the means to give back because right. it's going to take a substantial amount of money based on the systematic oppression that we've been dealing with the last 400 years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how do you gain that wealth? Uh, you started with, you work with Kraft, you work with uh, Goodyear, Goldman Sachs, uh, which is interesting. And then you help advise uh, Apple and Microsoft and some mm -hmm. of them, uh, M&As. Right. Um, you know, all super well-known companies. So, you know, at each stop, of those companies, uh, what lessons did you learn and, and what did you take from them in order for you to start Vista? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I will unpack parts of it because parts of it's a lot. Mm -hmm. What did I learn? Mm -hmm. And you had patents too. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. A number of them. Yeah. Uh, and some trade <laughs> secrets that were very valuable uh -huh. uh, that we didn't patent because we didn't want the competition to know how to do it. Let uh, me tell you what I learned. Uh, and I'll sum it up. I learned the joy of figuring things out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I tell my kids, I'm going to leave them three things. They're not happy about it some days. <laughs> uh, the first thing my is- My kids, y'all listen to me. <laughs> right. The first thing is an understanding that you are enough. Okay. You are enough to be who you want to be. And you do not need anyone else to say that it's enough and it's okay. Mm -hmm. You are enough. That's the first thing. Second thing is, I want them to discover the joy of figuring things out. Mm -hmm. And the third gift, uh, I hope I can live them to help them understand that love is all that matters. Okay. Now they keep looking for the asset list <laughs> is the fourth thing, but those are the three things I think that are important. What I learned in my journey, uh, is that second, the joy of figuring things out. I like solving complex problems and creating elegant solutions. Like I say, what am I really good at? Creating elegant solutions to complex problems. Vista is just a really elegant solution to a complex problem. Mm -hmm. That complex problem is how do you invest in a way 
that you have repeatable outcomes with minimal loss ratios. Yes, sir. What we do is we find these businesses that lend themselves to bringing sets of best practices Mm -hmm. to enable those management teams to accelerate their corporate maturity, grow while being profitable, okay, for profitable growth, Mm -hmm. and position those companies to be the leaders in their space and have sustainable outcomes and a sustainability because that's why they're attractive to buyers. Mm -hmm. Because they say, wow, you have created an infrastructure that is sustainable that now I can capture economic benefit from even buying from you at that price where you guys get that return. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And oh, by the way, that loss ratio. Okay. So what I have learned is think about life through systems. Mm -hmm. Think about creating efficiency in those systems, engineer solutions as opposed to episodic changes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about how I like to teach, and in part, either what we're doing in Vista or philant- you know, philanthropically is how do you build systems that scale, right. that have sustainable capacity associated with them? That's how I think that's the lens through which I view like that came from solving systemic problems like working at Kraft General Foods. You know, yeah. we, we had a problem with the you know manufacturing of log cabin syrup once <laughs> okay and i went and solved that problem okay or a problem with how we did our manufacturing and our yields for maxwell house coffee and i've solved that problem mm-hmm. and how we manufacture you know how i you know solve some problems associated with 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 the you know implementation of computer systems in 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 uh in, in process industries to create 30 percent yield increases in a product that had been produced for 40 years mm-hmm. You, you see what I mean? Yes. So, but when you create a systemic change, you reach a new equilibrium. Yes. And that new equilibrium should be more productive. And so the point is, think about it through that lens as opposed to, oh, let me make a quick change yeah. now. No, think about a systemic change that now has ability to scale. That's how I think about it. So we'll move into investment. So sure. obviously you've been... um a great investor. Obviously, you had a great mind for what's what's good and you know what you want to be a part of. What criteria do you look for, or anything specific in that area for a successful investment, or you know what you, what you want to follow up behind? Yeah, there are two categories in investments. I think about the investments that I do in Vista, and then I think about my philanthropic investments. Mm. Two categories. Yeah. Okay, in Vista investments for me, we are looking for companies that have the ability to be product leaders in their space, not for quarters or for years, but for decades. And what is it that's keeping them from being that or enhancing that? And what is it that we can uniquely bring in terms of insights and experiences that can enable that management team to accomplish and achieve those goals and objectives? That's what I look at. Okay. We focus on enterprise software because we think about the very nature of that business. You know, it's 95% gross margin business. At the end of the day, you build it once, you sell it many times. Anytime you sell it, you don't use it up. There's no inventory. It's negative working capital, all those sorts of things. And oh, by the way, there's still most of them are founder led. And often those founders experiences may have one or two experiences, but they haven't captured the plethora of 600 transactions like we have in terms of here's how you now can run that part of your business a little more efficiently than you may have yeah. thought about it in the past. Right. And we can enable you to do it that way. 
so that your management team can be more effective at it. And that's why 70% of the deals that we have at Vista are founder-led deals. And 90% of those founders are still with us in some way, shape, form, or capacity. It's like, you all have the ability to help me accelerate my corporate maturity Mm -hmm. and build systems of scale and infrastructure that I otherwise can't do by myself, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what we do uniquely, differently there, and we can do it systemically as opposed to, oh, we did great on that deal. Not so good on that one, but that one made up that one. No, we have a very consistent Uh, track record of what we do. Uh I don't mean to cut you off, but- Yeah, yeah, sure. Are you looking at the founder or the business? And what are you looking for in the founder? Yes and yes. Okay. Okay. The business, we have to, again, we look at what's the addressable market? What's the opportunity set? Is this a product that can have product superiority? Because at the end of the day, the superior products, takes two things to actually really do well in enterprise software, product superiority and execution excellence, right? Mm-hmm. And you got to think about, can you get those two? Now, that's where it comes in the founders and leadership. Can they actually execute? Are they open? Are they listening? Are they in tune? Are they intellectually curious? Do they want to be better? Mm-hmm. Okay. Or do they just want to cash out, get some money, go do something else, right? So, I mean, there's all yeah. that dynamic, right? And yeah. that's just, yeah. that's reality. That's and that's that's okay. That's real. And that's okay. Okay. But you just got to know that going in and make your assessment and say, here are the things we can bring to the table. Here's what you can bring to the table. And here's what we think what this company can be if we do this together. Mm-hmm. That's how we think about it. And some say, man, I'm done. I'm tapped out. I've had enough. I'm worn out. I've been doing this 22 years. I got enough. Okay, great. Fine. Let's talk about who needs to now run that business. Okay. You see what I mean? Yeah. But that's a conversation. Yeah. It's not a dictated. That's a conversation. So, so what makes you so comfortable in that position, obviously, it's a leadership position. I see you won a lot, but, you know, like people say, it's been 22 years. I'm tired in this situation. I'm tired in that situation. What makes you so comfortable in both your business investments and your, you know, philanthropic investments to, to lead groups and really change a narrative and change a landscape? That's a and great question. Sure that you can do it. On the Vista side, it's because uh, we've just done a lot of deals. We've yeah. done almost six Hundred software transactions wow. completed. Right. I'm not talking about looked at. Yeah, talked about. Yeah. <laughs> My vice presidents have done 40, 50 deals. They've closed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Their experience set, that volume set. So we have just done a lot. So we have the confidence and conviction based on things we have done. Mm-hmm. Right. Not based on, oh, we want to do. No, things we have done. We have seen this fact pattern before. Don't get me wrong. Look, if we were in oil and gas and, you know, and, insurance and 15 different industries, we may not have that confidence. We may have only worked on one or three or five deals in that space. Uh We've done 600 in enterprise software. There's no one who's done that many deals Mm -hmm. in one space. Okay. So that's that side of the house. (laughs) (laughs) You you, you see what I mean? On the other side of, okay, philanthropically and how I think about it, it is you have to take an assessment. To my, in my view of what can we impact and how can we do it at scale? You know, you said something earlier in the conversation about philanthropy and, you know, and, and capital. And there's part of philanthropy is capital for sure. But I tell my teams all the time, some of the most effective philanthropy we can actually deliver is our 
organizational thought. Mm-hmm. We know how to organize businesses at scale. Yes. Yes. So let's go organize philanthropy at scale. Mm-hmm. So we're not hitting one and two and three and fives with 20s and 30s and 50s and hundreds and thousands and millions of people, which technology can do. I will submit to you some of the work that we do with some of our companies in education. Sure, they're for profit. They're philanthropic in their end goal. At the end of the day, it is to improve the education of the people on this planet because the more educated people become, the lower the poverty rates are, the more they're able to sustain, you know, economic development in their communities. Mm -hmm. So we should be continuing to expand economic platforms, education platforms to as many communities as we can throughout the world. Mm -hmm. That's part of the work, but there's, People who know how to do it at scale, like us, and there's people where it's just as important that if there's a kid in your neighborhood that nobody's reading him every night or her every night, you should do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is a young man, I will tell you, that when I grew up, there's a bunch of us in my neighborhood, eight of us, I think is the number. Um, There were seven guys and one one girl, Marianne. And this guy, African-American male, decided to start a rocket club and teach us about rocketry. Mm -hmm. Paid for it out of his own pocket, took us down to the elementary school, and we built and shot off rockets. Six out of those eight kids became either engineers or scientists. Right. Think about that. Mm -hmm. The impact of one person, what it had. Okay, so philanthropically, sure, there's a lot to what we can do, you know, work we do with Lincoln Hills, Intern X, Student Freedom Initiative, you know, Southern Communities Initiative. But it's just as important for people to say, let me take this on and teach this kid down in my neighborhood math or science or rocketry, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's just as important that we do that. I want to follow up on that because... um you have a very positive spirit and very positive outlook. And, um, you know, you're a product of uh, desegregation busing. And you hear a lot of, you know, horror stories in that regard. But with you, it seems like you had a positive outlook on hmm. it. And, uh, you know, what part of that was so transformative? And, uh, you know, what did you take away from that experience? That's a, it is interesting. You know, I do have a positive outlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a lot has to do with, I call it the grace uh, that I think has uh, been bestowed on me. And I feel very grateful. You all are here, get a chance to participate in what we call Gratitude Weekend. This is a weekend we're not raising money. We're, what we are doing is being grateful about all that God has given us and what we are able to give to each other as a result of that. I have a very dear friend, um, and he and I talk about it, that we feel blessed to be a blessing. And, you know, Segregation uh, was a horrible thing in some respects um, because it created classes of other and people did not get a chance to get to know each other. I remember when I went to Denver East High School, um, well, they started desegregating the schools here uh, when I was in elementary school. Uh, I was one of the first classes, actually first classes of of kindergartners and first graders. Uh, And I remember... um, that in my neighborhood, uh, 
we were supposed to get, I think, three buses, but the night or the two days before, whatever it was, some racist burnt a third of the buses that were supposed to be used for busing uh, for desegregation. So they only sent one bus to my neighborhood as opposed to three. Okay. And bus number 13, kind of ironically, if you think about it, right? And so when I look at it, the kids who got on that bus, who went across town to a more richly resourced school, on average, did better than the kids who didn't get on the bus. The kids who got on that bus, they became engineers, they became politicians, they went to Ivy League schools. Very few of the kids in our neighborhood who did not get on bus number 13 ended up in that condition. A few did, but very few. Okay. So you start to understand the importance of education and high quality education in equal education and equal access to education. Those are the things that I point to and see because I was in, I experienced it firsthand. Okay. And to me, that's why it's so essential that we continue to enable access to the highest quality education to our community. It makes a difference, a huge difference. A huge difference. I've got a case study that I lived and experienced. Now, as a as a CEO, you know, as a black CEO, um, and one of the few, what surprised you most early in your career as CEO? Uh, and is there anything about it that you know uh, surprises you now as as a prominent CEO? Growing up, how I grew up, very little surprises me about how I am treated as an African American. And as an African-American CEO, mm-hmm. um, you get disappointed about it sometimes, but it's not surprising because we have experienced this for so long. Um, and you learn that your job, there's a guy by the name of Guy Johnson, uh, who was Maya Angelou's son, who wrote a book that I get probably, I don't know, 100 copies of this book away a year. Mm. Uh, it's called Standing at the Scratch Line. I'll give you guys a copy if I haven't given it to you. Um, and he talks about racism in the book. Mm-hmm. It's fiction, but it's a brilliant, beautiful book, one of my favorites. And he says, racism is like gravity. If you spend too much time thinking about it, it'll weigh you down. You just got to keep moving. Mm-hmm. You just got to keep moving. And that's the approach I take. And that's hopefully the approach I impart. You're going to find some things. You're going to be swimming upstream. Some people aren't going to like the way you did something, have a mischaracterization of what you did. How you, okay. Keep moving. Y'all know this, right. right? You're in a game. Guess what? Make a mistake. Keep moving. Keep moving. Hopefully you don't get pulled out, yeah. right? Yeah. Keep moving. Keep moving. That's the lesson. Yeah. I'm against solution. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going Straight from that point, um, I had a job with uh, Comcast Ventures, mm-hmm. and I headed up the Catalyst Fund. The Catalyst Fund was specifically for um, investing dollars into underserved or underrepresented founders. Mm-hmm. Um, Good, yeah, you know, yeah, um, African Americans, yep. um, Latinx uh, mm-hmm. female founders. But the issue that we found was finding enough of those founders. It was just hard finding them in general. Mm-hmm. You know, you went into the tech sector. How much money is directed to underrepresented founders? You know, it might be less than one percent. Oh, it's in the way less than one percent. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, what I think we found was, like you said, you got to find someone who's going to teach kids rockets, or you got to put 
um, African Americans, females in uh, C-suite positions or on board seats to mm-hmm. start finding these, um, building that that on ramp, yeah, to to get people interested. Um, and then that leads me to the question of, you know, how do you look in terms of uh, how do you look for black founders and mm-hmm. uh, black led companies and what's your thinking uh, when you invest in these companies? Um, do do you change your train of thought uh, in terms of the other principles you had and other like you got 600 deals you've got done? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure a majority of those um, are especially in SaaS aren't black led. Right. So but now we've done the biggest one. Uh, with Drift was led by two Latinx mm-hmm. and, you know, Rocket Lawyer led by African-American male, right? Mm-hmm. Those two deals, $1.2 billion. I don't know of any other fund on the planet that's put that much money into African-American businesses or Latinx businesses. Just point blank, right? But now in software, technology, right? But here's the thing. It comes down to you have to think about the entire ecosystem. So we're going to talk about sustainable uh-huh. solutions, mm-hmm. these elegant solutions, yeah. InternX is a part of that because you're you're right. You know, there. I look at my graduating classes of engineers; very few African Americans. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and of course, you look at you know the, the world we're in. It's, it's a technology dominated world, so that's why we created InternX. Why internships change your life? We've got fourteen thousand African American students on our InternX platform. Mm-hmm. Fourteen thousand. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I think we now have to, over two hundred corporate partners who go to this place to get interns, mm-hmm. right? So anyone who's listening to podcasts, go to Intern XL. I think it's what we're called Intern XL. Yeah. We just, we just uh, renamed it XL as uh, the letters. Um, it's important that we give them the opportunities to see what the world of technology is about, what it is, because that is the world that surrounds them today. But from a producer of the software, the technology, not just a consumer of it. That's how you get these yes. entrepreneurs. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Because we, we, you, ha- you said it earlier this morning and it was like yeah. profound. We have to stop being consumers. Yeah. We got to be producers. Producers. Producers of software and technology, but you're not going to just come out of the womb saying, oh, I'm going to do this. You have to have experiences. You have to have those internships mm-hmm. that where you have a chance to see with technology and software and how to create it and how to build it. And now it's been easier than ever because now we have what the super scalers out there, you know, AWS's and the Oracle's and the, you know, and the, uh, the Azure's and, mm-hmm. you know, where, okay, guess what? You can use a credit card and get access to all the computing power you want, but what do you do with it? Right. Someone has to teach you on our intern XL platform. We have 650 learning modules. Mm-hmm. Think about that, where these kids can go on free and learn Python or learn how to program or learn how to do an interview or learn what AT&T it does for a living. Right. You see what I mean? Right, yeah, so right. all those things are important systems that you can just go on to free, gain access to it, understand, educate, mm-hmm. okay. Inform yourselves, you know, discover the joy of figuring things out and now go get an internship. And start getting on that journey at scale, mm-hmm. at scale. That's how we think about it. That's how I think about it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll break in deeper, obviously, into philanthropic work. But, yep. you know, one thing that you did in 2019 that, you know, set the world on fire was you cleared out the debt for the 2019 Morehouse College. Yeah. And you followed that up with the student initiative. Fund. Mm-hmm. You go, you know, deeper into what you know, clearing out that debt meant and why you were able to do that. And, yeah. you know, the, everybody sees it on the surface, but. You yeah, know. you should. So it'd be fun. So I, I have a meeting with the, uh, the Morehouse class, the last 
Thursday of every month. And we do a two hour call. Uh, and they can ask whatever questions they have. Some have guest speakers. And all. You guys should come on sometime. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's next week. Yeah. Um, and they ask every question from how do I go get a raise from my boss to how do I start a business? How do I rate, you know, how do I go, you know, create a banking relationship so I can borrow money for my business? I mean, it's real life kind of stuff. So you guys, I think you got to come on. I think they'd appreciate yes, uh, hearing from you. Um, but what you see is a liberation. It's a liberation of a human spirit. And I don't think there's anything greater. A liberation of I can go now do some things that I otherwise was burdened and I couldn't before. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, that's the point of it. Right. And so what we've done with the Student Freedom Initiative is saying, you know, because look, the, 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 the facts are African-Americans graduate with more debt. That takes them longer to pay it off. Yep. Typically, three years, four years after, four years after they 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 actually have more debt because of the way the compound interest works and how much they paid off. They typically get a job that pays them less, right. and so that forestalls their ability to actually create will real wealth in buying a house, buying stocks, bonds, you know, uh, uh, any form of securities that could actually build wealth in their families. And most of these. Uh, students didn't come from wealth, so they don't have any wealth to rely on. And right. their parents and grandparents went into debt. So what we did with uh, Student Freedom Initiative is said, listen, let's create, it's called a, it's an uh, income contingent fund, but basically what it is, it's a fund where you can borrow from that fund and you pay back to the fund, not to the government, yes. to the fund, yes. and now that recycles back yes. into the community. Yes. If, for instance, though, you decide to become a teacher in your neighborhood and, you know, elementary school and you're not making enough to pay it back, you know, if you do 20 years of that, guess what? You paid it back. As far as we're concerned. Mm -hmm. You you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it is a way that our community can create a self-sustaining funding model for us to get educated. We focus on STEM students. We're hitting every HBCU. Mm -hmm. And MSI, you know, Minority Serving Institution, and provide that, that capital. And so we've now had, you know, I've, I've, you know, between myself, Fund 2 Foundation, um, uh, $100 million, and uh, Cisco has now put $100 million into it. Now another $50 million we're using to actually create broadband access for all HBCUs. You guys don't know this because I didn't know it until two years ago, which is why we're solving the problem. 82% of HBCUs are in a broadband desert. Mm. Think about that. In a world sure. where technology is critically important, 82% of our historically black colleges and universities are in a broadband desert. And so now we are working the Student Freedom Initiative to ensure that all HBCUs and the students have broadband access. Okay, so now we took that on as a separate mission because you can't participate in the new economy if you don't have access to broadband. Pain is simple, right? And it makes no sense. Yeah, so we're solving that problem. So, I mean, look, this is what I talk about solving solving problems at scale. Yes. And you know, if we get once well, well not if once we get all of the HBCUs up and running on that, I mean, you think about now these students have access. Now they have access to the computing capacity mm-hmm. that they otherwise wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And now you can unleash and liberate their minds of creativity and entrepreneurship and the ability to now go drive, you know, opportunities forward. You know, uh, a friend of mine, Pinky, she just announced it was at, at Clark University or Atlanta University. You oh, know, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah everybody's going to get an LLC, right? We think about uh-huh. it. All right, great. Now, which is a great thing, yeah. and I really admire her for that. And it's important that these students realize what gift that is to think mm-hmm. about life through the lens of an entrepreneur. But if you don't have access to technology to create platforms or create yeah. models or solutions to deliver your products or expand your market area or to make more efficient your accounting, uh, it, it's a tougher, tougher, tougher sled. I will give you one statistic. 
that we do. Uh, the average enterprise software solution that we sell gives our average customer 640% ROI, return on investment. That's our average product that we sell to our average customer. To a small to medium business, it's over 900% return on investment for software that they buy. Okay. So if you're a small business and you are not using software to enable your business to be effective, yeah. you're going to be, you know, non-competitive ultimately. And so it's important that we think about producing software to sell to our small and medium businesses that are uniquely tuned to our, you know, what our businesses are and we're selling it. So that's why that ecosystem is important. I want to talk about, it just came to my mind, endowments. Yeah. And especially in HBCUs, Mm -hmm. you know, um, how do we solve for that issue? And I want to talk about accountability too within our community with how we manage our funds with things like endowments. Cause we, you know, um, all our um, black eye issues in terms of how we handle our finances, in terms of how we consume, overconsume, or how we mismanage our funds. Um, how do we solve for that issue, especially with, you know, you look at some of these great institutions of higher education, uh, especially the Ivy Leagues, you know, how do we start looking at how they build their endowments and, you know, it's just the universities almost seem like it's run as a business and we just become, we just yeah. uplift everybody that's within the institution. So let me, let me unpack some parts of that. If you add up all the endowments for all the HBCUs, it's smaller than the, than the smallest endowment of the Ivy league mm-hmm. the, of, of the smallest Ivy league school mm-hmm. point one. So we took this on, we said, okay, here's what we got to do. We started unpacking it, and a lot of them had constraints as to what they could invest in. Now, if you think about it, over the last 25, 30 years, 40 years, the best investments were in financial securities, stocks, bonds, mm-hmm. okay, but mainly stocks mm-hmm. in that context, mm-hmm. in terms of asset appreciation, yes. where they were prohibited based on charters to do that. Wow. Most of the HBCUs. So Dr. Richardson over at Virginia Union, he and I talked about this a year and a half ago. We said, this is just wrong. Okay. Now you've got to go through a process where you now have to get from the board, you know, the ability to change your investing criteria for your endowments. You can now invest in stocks or alternatives, Mm -hmm. private equity, Mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff in order to participate in what was the greatest capital expansion on the history in the history of this world. Our endowments could not actually participate. So we formed a group. Includes a number of asset managers like myself, mm-hmm. okay, and also advisors that help these boards now convert. We've now converted six of them. So now they have the ability to do this. This is all real time. This is happening like as we sit here okay. today. Mm-hmm. Dr. Richardson and others have said, okay, now that we've done that, we are now going to allocate over 60% of the dollars for those endowments to African-American managers. Okay. Now yes. think about it. Yes. In the investment world, less than 1% of the dollars actually go to African-American managers. So you think about there are certain cities, you know, in California, Los Angeles and others where 50, 60% of the contributions to those pension plans are black and brown people, but less than 1% is managed by black and brown people. Now think about it. That's just wrong. Yes. It's just wrong. Okay. So at least the HBCUs are now saying, now let's take that and start putting that capital into fund managers of the grandchildren and children of those who have run those institutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the dynamic. So that's what's happening today. And it's critically important because as you build those endowments, they have the ability to be much more flexible in how they actually, you know, hopefully they're investing in firms that are, you know, returning capital, which I know because our, our firms are really doing well in terms of our uh, 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 member organizations. Mm-hmm. 
uh, they can now be more thoughtful about how to utilize that capital, not only to educate, but enable those citizens, those students to participate in the next generation of economies and economic activity. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're working on. Mm -hmm. So I heard a story, I think you can say yes or no, but you said, uh, I read that when you were younger, your mother, regardless of your financial situation, would donate $25 every month to, uh, you know, the not a Negro college yeah, fund. United yeah. Negro college yeah. Fund. Is mm -hmm. that something that really drove you on top of the story of your grandfather saying your mom being able to it was, get admitted to college and yeah, a lot had to, yeah, help I'll everybody. I'll tell you, Evan, it was, again, it was just the community I grew up in. You know, yeah. I just, that my mom did that. My dad, you know, was chairman of the YMCA. That's where we all, you know, sold candy and, you know, to, to, to enable, you know, the, the pool to be operational and we're able for us to have, you know, build a gym and we built a gym. Okay. We, we built that in our community, raising money, doing the work, doing the lift. So kids had a place to go to learn how to play basketball or, you know, yeah. baseball or have summer activities and a place to go that was safe. And that's what it was about. It was you had, you know, my parents were very involved in the Head Start programs. Okay. You know, starting those up, making sure very involved in, in the program. So kids had a, a breakfast before they went to school in the morning if they didn't. I mean, I, I saw that every day. This wasn't, yeah. you know, we talk about philanthropy. It wasn't, oh, it's episodic. I wrote a check. No, it's every day. What are you doing to yeah. enable your community to be more successful yeah. and healthier and stronger and more capable? And that's just the nature of how the black community I grew up in was, right? right? Yeah. That's just what it was. So, so during this time, um, obviously, you do a lot of fundraisers and before things jump off and, you know, you go into rooms where it's different colors of people that might not identify with some of the struggles and the hurdles we had to come across in the mm -hmm. past and still, how do you get people to see your side or even get them to, you know, donate and get behind your cause or you have a 2% theory and be like, yo, this is, this is what we need because this is yeah, right much more. Is it at the beginning, it had to be some resistance in that sense. And there still is. Yeah, 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 yeah. As logical as it sounds, you know, our start, <laughs> right. you're right. Um, our Southern Communities Initiative, uh, which I've partnered now with, you know, Dan Schulman over at PayPal and Rich Lesser over at BCG and, you know, a few others. And what we did was we just kind of unpacked. You know, we take these Southern communities, do a hundred mile radius around these cities. You get to 50% of the black population. Now, what do they need? Right. And it's enablement of capital, enablement of digital systems. And, and so we're working on that. Right. And I would think every corporation on the planet or in the world, in the U S at least would say, this makes a ton of sense and it works. Um, cause it does work. Yeah. Right. You, we, we show you digitize a, CDFI, Community Financial Development Institution, and MDI, guess what? They can lend out orders of magnitude more money and not increase the risk on the money in, you know, that they're lending out. Mm. And it changed the economic condition of that community. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. And you think, okay, well, we do that with one of our companies because it's you know, economic and all that sort of stuff. But now it's, it's okay help these communities do this. And so, you know, we've got like Ramin Foundation to partner with NAACP. So now we're doing it for African-Americans in these communities as opposed to kind of anybody who shows up, right? Yeah. And so you just got to build infrastructure and scale and systems. And, you know, proof of the pudding is always in the eating, you know what I mean? And just show people it works. And some will get on board, some will sit back and say, oh, it's not my idea. Yeah. 
But you know, like all like we we're talking about, you know, it's like gravity, man. You just gotta keep going. Yeah, absolutely. You know, go solve the problem and change the condition of people's lives. Well, I'll, I'll hopefully, you know, and I'll end it with like simplicity. Yeah. And you know, we've gotten feedback from our listeners in terms of sometimes we get uh, may not be understanding the verbiage or you know understand you know how we speak in terms of uh, investing mm-hmm. um, or how we thinking about. Uh, a founder, we might go above, you know, their train of thought. Um, but there's access now, you know, digitally in terms of people being able to invest. You know, you got you know, Robinhood, you mm-hmm. know, it's becoming more of a retail investor. You know, you got meme stock, you know, yeah. the retail investors become smarter. You know, mm-hmm. they went and said, all right, let's, let's go and they trying to kill GameStop. <laughs> let's go over there and reverse. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like they, they, you know, uh, against Wall Street, you know, mm-hmm. they banded yeah. together, but now they're doing it, you know, mobily. Now they're doing it digitally. Um, two thirds of Americans, uh, live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. You know what I mean? And at the same time, uh, the wealth is becoming more concentrated with the few. You know, yeah. we know how that works. Mm-hmm. You know, it's less than 1% of uh, fund managers are right. uh, African Americans. Um, how do we open up investment opportunities? Uh, for the average American to allow them to, you know, participate in long-term wealth as a as a as a retail investor, because I know you deal mostly with uh, institutions, private, yeah. right, right, institutions and, and, yeah. and private equity. Right. You know, how do we get um, our community to, you know, what's your overall theme in terms of getting them to, you know, all right, we're consumers, but mm-hmm. let's take that some of that consumption and, you know, Invest. diversify yeah. your portfolio, not just buying stuff. But investing in the long yeah, there's wealth. there's multiple levels of that, uh, Dre. I mean, so one of them is you know I I support um uh one of our uh, groups called Goal Setter, okay. And you I think yes. you guys have met Tanya, yes, Tanya Van Cor. She was just here as part of our restoration retreat, uh, educating young people on financial literacy, mm-hmm. okay. And there's an application that you can now use Goal Setter, mm-hmm. uh, and teaching you the importance of how do you now. Think about your consumptive patterns. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can you take $5 a week and actually invest it in a savings account, invest it in stock, or go buy, you know, something at the store? Compound investing is the ninth one of the world. You got <laughs> it, right? You got it, right? So her systems, her tools, all of that are built towards that. And then I said, okay, time to do one better, which we did for Eagle Academy. And we said, all right, let's give, we gave one share of stock of every one of the Vista uh, public companies to all the students and faculty and administrators and staff of Eagle Academy. Mm -hmm. Okay. We're about to do this again for another group here. And so it's educating and helping people understand. And part of her mission then is, okay, now let's go get stock from, you know, a bunch of different corporations. You all do the same thing, pledge and let us get a million brown people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be stockholders. Yes. And now you can start to understand it if you see it. It's like, like I said, if I hadn't had a chance to work in Bell Labs, I wouldn't understand or would have had a chance to understand tech. But well, so now you end up, say you have a, a stock and you're kind of watching it and it goes up and it goes down and you start following the earnings. Guess what? Yes. You're going to start to understand yes. that market and have a curiosity in it and probably say, man, this is an interesting way. I'm going to tell you a story. So back when I was a kid, I was, you know, I was a sweeper boy, right? So I used to sweep. So I went to junior high school, go junior high school, no longer exists. Uh, you know, go to school, have wrestling practice, and then I sweep the floors. That was my job. 
right? And then all of a sudden I was getting checks at a couple hundred dollars and five hundred dollars, all that sort of stuff. So what do I do with this? And there was a place called World Bank, and this was during a high inflation. And I went down and they were actually having passbook savings accounts paying 10, 11, 12%. I'm like, well, what is that? Okay, you put this money in and you get 10% if you don't touch it. Huh. Okay, do I trust this bank? And I had to take the bus down. I was like, okay, I put the money in the bank. And guess what? Next month, yeah, man, it went up. Okay, and then I said, well, and they talked to me things about these things called certificates of deposit. Mm-hmm. What's that? If you lock it up for a longer period of time, you actually get more interest on it. And I said, okay, well, I don't really need this money right now. So I'll lock it up for six months. And guess what? You made 11%. I'm like, man, this is pretty good. So I actually, at some point in time, was making a little more money on interest than I was making working every day. Right. Okay. When you learn that when you're age 13, 14, 15, you start understanding the power of compound interest and the power of financial securities yeah. and all. You see what I mean? Yeah. But if you never saw that, you How buy, would you know? You buy some Jordans. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you speak a lot on, obviously, you you have it. What's uh, a Pelly Pelly? I don't know. Uh, Pelly Pelly in Chicago. It's a leather coat. Oh, okay. I was like, what's a Pelly Pelly? You wear that with a buck fifty. My side dudes know it. Okay. I see. I just learned something. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if they're black and black on. Yeah. But um. I was saying, obviously, you seem like you have it all figured out in business and somewhat philanthropy, but uh, philanthropic. But the harder tasks for all parents. Yeah. How are you going to go about Man, it's teaching hard. your kids about wealth and wealth management? It's hard. I got a story just teaching, for that. You know, yeah. It's different. Yeah. yeah. Because I need your help on this. Yeah. So, if um, I can help. <laughs> so, um, you know, my wife is on me. Yeah, come help with these kids. Yeah. I'm like, all right, you're right. I can't argue with that. <laughs> But sometimes the work to be calling. So I say, my son's 15. Yeah. My youngest is five. I say, man, you babysit for me. He said, all right, cool. I said, hey, I just need you for like two hours. That's it. Yeah. And uh, I was <laughs> like, um, I'll give you $100. No, I was like, you fit- I go get you some uh, five. I said, I go get you some five guys. Yeah. He said, oh, I'm, I'm in. Bet. Yeah. Five guys for an hour. Watch a hyper right? five-year-old. Right. right. <laughs> I, five- I was like, I go get the five guys, bring it back right there on the spot. Yeah. You got to watch it next morning. So then I, then I look at my schedule. I said, no, nah, I don't need it for an hour. I need it for two hours. So I said, I'm going to make it better. I said, nah, scratch that. I'm going to give you $100 for two hours yeah. instead of five guys for an hour. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me like, <laughs> I don't know, Pops. I don't, I don't. <laughs> no, that's what he said. He said, yeah. I'll do the two hours, but I don't want the $100. I want the five guys. <laughs> I, said, yeah. I said, what? Oh, yeah. what? I said, son. You know how much five guys you can get with a hundred dollars? And I was like, I figured it out. I said, you don't need money, do you? He was like, I mean, no. Nah, what about you? I don't need no money. <laughs> I got you, <laughs> right? And I, uh, and I was like, gave that money back when he went on a date. Yeah. Right. Well, he was like, bro, who don't take a hundred dollars? Don't take. He, he was like, I only need thirty dollars. I don't need a hundred dollars. Right. Help me. I don't <laughs> help me with that. Uh, yeah. For Christmas, yeah. he asked like a ten dollar tour. You like, bro, why am I out here doing? Like, <laughs> right. Right. No, that's a challenge, right? I mean, the, the good news is. We are now, you all, and I, there's, there's 1,500 African American males that get four billion, four point one billion $4.1 billion a year. Mm-hmm. That's y'all. Yes. It's great. And I've been trying to repeat that. Dude, it is great. Mm-hmm. Okay. The next piece of that is how do you translate that into generational wealth? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Education is critically important on that, you know, goal setter apps, those mm-hmm. sort of things. So he starts to understand. Right. Okay. We've also have to create 
realistic consumptive patterns for them where they have to earn things. People don't appreciate what they don't earn. Right. You know that. Right. Right. If you give it to them, they, mm-hmm. but if they earn it, no matter what it is, and it's, it's, it's a journey every day. Um, and, you know, I deal with it with, with, with my kids all the time. So it's the business is like today, I think I told you, you know, my son's going to now come back and present some of the work that he's doing on some real estate investment evaluation. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, great. You got to do that and say, all right, you know, I don't know what I'm expecting here right now, but um, I know his intentions are good. Uh, looking for a billion, man, to yeah. get started. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we break it out of small, but, but part of it is also, um, I call it the club effects. I mean, you guys, so think about how you get your kids of similar ages to learn this together. Right. Gamify yeah. it. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. It's like, okay, guess what, you guys, you know, Take your kids and say, all right, you know, it's going to be 8, 10, 12. Now have a competition. Maybe do it in NBA. All, all y'all's kids are in Africa and different levels, say, stock picking, bond picking, portfolios every quarter. You all give something that they value as a prize. Guess what? I bet you their focus will turn. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So be creative about it and say, okay, whoever does the best in the 11 to 13 year old category gets one of your rings. Hey, man. Well, I, you're giving me one for this interview, so I don't know. anyway, I, 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 you only got like three left, I got right? A couple of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You got, well, you got four, right? That's that's not all right. Yeah, yeah right. Do that. Anyway, but, but think of something like that. Yes, that is, you know, create the incentive that that is valuable to them, and create a learning environment, and then you guys can get involved in in the process. You can do it all digitally on zoom yes 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 right yes, yes, yes. so do something like that i mean just Let's an go. idea Let me yeah. not, no, i'll participate that'll be fun okay now andre right. i know you don't like when dad kills you i know you, you got the job you got a summer job yeah, yeah and he did a really good job and he made a good amount of he made some real money money i right. never made at his age and i said what you gonna buy with it he said i just want this nice jump i just want this uh track suit and then i just save the rest good so i'm like all right we get yeah. it so i ain't gonna i'm gonna give you the good part son yeah but now now <laughs> get him investing <laughs> yes, and yes, yeah yes, i mean yes, I, yes. I cracked him so it's like the other you know, like my son you know he works here at the ranch uh and he earned some money and all that so i was giving him the cash he's like dad what am i gonna do with that he's like you got to put it on my digital on my out on my apple watch whatever <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? it was kind of interesting i was like yeah. okay apple yeah, yeah yeah i'm like okay so now it's like he's like i only buy three things digital so yeah. that kind of tells you right that, okay son it? now yes. you know handing him cash was useless it was funny i was talking with michael jordan about this like you know okay yeah giving kids cash is you they're like what am, what am i going to do right. with that that's true yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like get, put it on my phone put it on you know what i mean yeah, so yeah, but that just yeah. tells you where our kids need to be and where we need to be in terms of them participating in the digital economy right yeah, yeah. that's and, a dynamic and close it out last question yeah what's the hardest part about being robert f smith oh man uh like like you said the demands of family Versus what you think about as the demands of community there, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Like coming, I was late here this morning because my daughters, you know, they wanted me to spend some time with them. Yeah, I, yeah. I get it. And so I said, I'm going to spend some time with y'all and I'll come see y'all a little later. That's right. I mean, like I said, there's very, look, you know, I wish like all things are, country had a different view as it manifests on race and we wouldn't have to have the kind of conversations we have. Right. And I hope one day we won't have to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. It'll be based on people's ability and all those sorts of things. Um, But man, you got to go do the lift. Yes. And hopefully, hopefully, you know, our, your generation, you guys are 
couple of years younger than me, uh, and the generation of our kids have to do less of a lift on that so they can do more of a lift on the enablement of opportunity for all Americans. And I think that's what we should be focused on. Yeah. Yeah. Anything for us? Questions for us? Use your platform. Mm -hmm. Um, Use your platform to educate, which I know you all do. And I think, think about creating, I like this idea of sustainable, um, education systems for your kids. Again, you got 15, there's more than y'all now, but 1500 plus of y'all who get that much capital every year, be efficient in the utilization of that Mm -hmm. for the purposes and goals that you're after. Mm -hmm. That's what I'd say. There's there's very few communities of that size that get that much money every year. Well, this is a very powerful episode. Um, We talk about podcasts uh, as a business, as a space, and you know how the catalog works. And this is this episode will stand the test of time. So we truly appreciate you and the value you brought to us. Thanks, guys. We can give value any time. We at your disposal. Thank you. Appreciate Appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thank you you for being here and enjoy the weekend. Gratitude weekend, and you know, really, you know, enjoy what Lincoln Hills has and what it is. Thank you. Really All right. great. Thank you. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks. Without a ball, it's just a court. And without your spirit, it's only a game. So, together with the fans, we bring our best. For your next pregame, let's share a twist on a classic. The Hennessy Margarita. A squeeze of fresh lime juice and a bit of agave syrup. Topped off with ice and a salted rim. Mix it, shake it, pour it. And enjoy the spirit of the NBA. Hennessy. Without your spirit, it's only a game. 21 and older, please drink responsibly. 